0: Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome back to the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Greg Deal. Greg is a professional cyclist, a professional artist, an activist, and a speaker. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show doesn't happen without the support of our title sponsor, the Norco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. Check them out at DirtSeries.com or find their partner link on our website. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So let's get right into it. You grew up in Park City,
0: is that that's right? Yeah, no, that that's right. It's a weird place to grow up, especially as like a a native kid in the '90s. And uh, my graduating class was like 100 kids, so I mean, it's small. It acts like a big town because there's three ski resorts and the Sundance Film Festival's there, and the Olympics. Like half of the Olympics were there in what 2002, I think. But it, by all intents and purposes, is a small town. So yeah, it was a weird place to grow up. I bet. I'm a
1: skier, obviously, and, you know, been there a lot of times, know a lot of people who are there now, but I've never met anybody who grew up who's from Park City.
0: Yeah, you know, my parents um, made just enough money for us to be broke around rich white folks, and it it was really strange because, like, we lived in low-income housing, these apartments that are right next door to the high school, and about a mile from the middle school, like, down the same road, and so, like, we... You know, we struggled as a family that didn't have a lot of money growing up in a town filled with rich folks that are from New York and California, but we still had the privileges of a ski resort town. So it's like you're broke, but you're still skiing and eventually snowboarding. So it's it's sort of a weird combination to be, you know, sort of like on that economic spectrum, but yet still have access to some highly privileged things. So yeah, it was weird.
1: Yeah, no, proximity has its benefits for sure. And you started biking with your dad when you were quite young.
0: Yeah, well, so, I mean, skiing was big growing up. So I, I started skiing when I was in third grade. Everything was hand me down. So my skis were always way too big for me when I was in elementary school and middle school. I started snowboarding in eighth grade. But up around that same time, in the summertime, my father was doing touring. That's what we called bikepacking back then. So this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And he rode a Bianchi and uh, we w- he would go out with his friends, with one of his friends, actually, who was like this old hippie desert rat guy. And they would just like pack their bags up and they would ride out for, you know, for days at a time and go bikepacking. And my dad and I didn't really get along very well. I think I just reminded him so much of himself that it was just really frustrating for him. And he was also really young. He was 19 when I was born. So, you know, when I'm like 13, 14 years old, you know, he's in his 30s, uh, early 30s. And so this was a way for us to connect. I think he wanted to take me on these adventures and I wanted to go on those adventures. And so that ended up being the place where we connected the most. When I was in, I think seventh or eighth grade, I had a job because we were a family that, you know, if you wanted something, you had to go get a job. And he said, if you save your money, I'll match whatever you save and we'll go get you a bike. And I ended up saving about $600. And he did not expect that. And we went to REI and got the best bike that they had at the time. It was a Navara brand. And and I got like a hardtail aluminum bike, like on on the higher end of things. I think he may have fudged. I don't think he had $600. So I think he may have fudged it a little bit, but I still got, you know, for that time and place, getting a bike that's you know, six to $800 is kind of equivalent to uh, like a $1,500 hardtail now. And so that's pretty much what I got at the time. It was purple and yellow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so what are some of your favorite trail memories when you think back?
0: Um, You know, we, when I was young, bikes were really important, you know, for just getting around. And it's, It was different then than it is now, I think, or maybe it's depending on where you live because I don't think I would do this. I don't think I would allow this with with my own children. But we used to, in the summertime, we'd leave. We would just like get on our little BMXs and we'd take off. And then Park City's a mining town. So, you can find old buildings. You can find, I mean, it's a little terrifying to think about it now, but mine shafts, abandoned mine shafts. And we would just find things and explore and, you know, and build. And so in Park City, like it's sort of in a valley surrounded by mountains. And, but once you get up to the main street area, there's, it's all, it's like uphill or downhill, like that, those are your only choices. So, we ride our bikes uphill and we get enough money that we can, you know, get some ice cream. Maybe we bring some lunch with us and some water. And then we ride our bikes and goof around. And then you're riding your bike, you know, back downhill, back down to the house and or to the apartment. We, we never lived in a house. And when we got evolved to mountain bikes, it was the same thing, but the stakes were higher. You're going faster. You have something that can support more damaging, you know, things you do with your bike. If you've ever been to Park City, the main area, and I don't think it's changed. I haven't been there in a long time. I haven't been back in a long time, but there's these main steps that go up to a big area and there's a skating rink and shopping area as you sort of make your way to to the ticketing office. And when I was a kid, we used to, on hardtails, we would come down a hillway past the uh, skating rink and jump off of the stairs and land midway down and you're just you know downhill and there's no suspension of course this is like 1989 and yeah it was we used to just do some crazy stuff that and we didn't wear helmets either you didn't wear helmets and and so yeah you know the bike to me was always just sort of this symbol of freedom and uh, you can go out and you can do things and to be able to already have that established and then have a father that is doing something that at the time was pretty unique to, to use your bike as a vehicle to get from point A to point B and to go camping. Ultimately sort of led me into this place of being able to do things that I thought were incredible. So we would do some trails and things in 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 Park City, but there wasn't a trail system set up at that point. It wasn't until probably the mid to late 90s that they began to allow people to take their bikes on the chairlift and then you'd ride up to the top of the hill and then you'd come down in the summertime. And, and so, other than hitting Guardsman's Pass, which is sort of above Park City, you know, you, we were just kind of hitting stuff in and around the town. And uh, having a mountain bike meant that you could, you know, you could go off road and you could go on road and it didn't really matter. But my dad and I did our first trip was to ride up to Utah Lake. And so we left Park City and I think it's still like this, there's like this narrow roadway that that comes out the back end of Park City. You pass the uh, Treasure Mountain Middle School is where I went um, on the left and you're coming around this area before you get out to the highway, but we're riding, you know, out towards the mountains. And we rode out that way. We did it in a couple of days and we stopped and we camped. And, you know, he cooked breakfast that morning. We had corned beef hash and eggs. And and then we rode the rest of the way and met my family up there. And it was exciting and terrifying because you're riding on you know, these narrow roads and there's semi trucks and everything else. And the highways that are there now weren't there at the time. These were, they were just single roads between Park City and Provo and Camus and, and Heber and all of those different places there, which now have pretty decent thoroughways. And so we did a couple of little trips, and that was a big one I remember before we did the biggest trip, which was a White Rim Trail trip down in uh, Canyonlands. And so that was in 1989, so I think I was, it was the summer, so I was 14, and it was me and my father and three family friends, and we went down to Canyonlands, and we started at one end of the White Rim Trail and rode the entire route, unsupported, so we carried our own water, our own food, our own gear, and we went for three days. We, like at the end of the second day, we hit the Green River so we could get some water, and it was at the time kind of nuts, like a calculated risk for sure. And, and I mean, I know now like there's guys that are doing, you know, there's people that are doing uh, the white room trail in a day, but like at the time it was just completely crazy. So like each of our bikes had probably 70 or 80 pounds on it. And wow. I mean, I was, I was like coming out of eighth grade. So I was, you know, probably, I don't know, hundred and 40 pounds wet. I mean, I was just all skin and bones. And yeah, that those were the trips that really meant a lot to me and moments at that sort of critical stage in your adolescence where, you know, you connect with your parent. There's that old sort of adage of fathers and sons. And so we, we had a good moment there before, you know, I hit high school and then things got a little more contentious. So yeah, I was a pain. I was a total pain in the butt. I know it was.
1: Me too. Yeah, me too. And we had, we were very similar, like free range kids, get on the bike, come home for supper.
0: Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, that was done in my house, even under threat, you know, like my father was just like, get out of here, do not come back until the sun goes down, you know, like, he just didn't want us around. He liked his space and we were loud and he just wasn't with it. So
1: so in your movie Homelands, which I loved, you retraced the migration of your nation from Pyramid Lake to Tahoe Trail or through Tahoe Trail to Pyramid Lake. Tell me about that trip.
0: Yeah, it's not so much of a, a migration as much as it is traveling the water source, which starts at Lake Tahoe, which of course gets runoff from the Sierras. And that water, the what is called the Truckee River, is a water source that empties into into Pyramid Lake and then it stops at Pyramid Lake. And of course, Pyramid Lake is sort of part of the old, I don't know what they, like ancient or prehistoric lake that, that essentially made up the Great Basin area. And Pyramid Lake is all that's left of, of that original lake. And so there's no outlet for that lake. The fish that are in there, the Kiwiui, uh, are indigenous to that space and only to that space, and uh, and then of course there's trout as well, and and so the the idea was to follow the Truckee, and following the Truckee was really also about recognizing the connection that Pyramid Lake has with all the other tribes that are along the way. So there's at least three communities, maybe even four, between the first spot you know in in Lake Tahoe going all the way down through Reno, uh, past Reno into Pyramid Lake. And I think it's just sort of a beautiful symbol of the way that like we're all connected and, you know, in a traditional way, but also in a practical way through water sources and for food sources. And it's also just got me thinking so much about the development that's happening in Reno and how that affects those waterways. I was actually just reading a book Recently, about how Utah, where I grew up, Utah Lake, which is in what they call Utah Valley, it's about an hour from Salt Lake City, how that area was a center point for the Ute that are over there. And that the river, which is called the Provo River now, was a a spawning space. So the, the fish that were in Utah Lake would spawn up the river, up what is called Provo River now. I believe at one point it was called Timpanogos. River. And so these are rich areas for the natives that were living in those spaces, but development and industrial sort of manufacturing factories that were built on the lake and Mormon settlers driving the natives away from those areas. And there's all these different things that like essentially is a settler colonialism that has completely destroyed those spaces to the degree the Utah Lake, which was at one point a center point, to Utah, and dead lake. There's It's polluted. There's nothing there. If you ever spend any amount of time in Provo, especially in the summertime, when the temperature shifts, the bottom of the lake will come to the surface and then the entire Utah Valley stinks because there's just nastiness and pollution in that lake. And that gives me pause. That makes me think about, you know, Lake Tahoe and the Truckee and Pyramid Lake. But I know the Truckees, you know, there's some trouble there. It's traveling over a 100 miles to get from uh, lake to lake. And how important those waterways are in, in keeping the survival of the fish, but also of the land for those spaces. I know that's a bit of a tangent. Sorry, I just read this like recently. No. i was just thinking through that. It's
1: important. I'm actually just reading (laughs) pollution as colonialism and all of these things are so tied together. And it's it's interesting things you sort of know intuitively, but to read it from the perspective of someone who has a much deeper relationship with land than me as like a Black settler. It's fascinating. It's very eye-opening how it's so much deeper than we even sort of understand at the surface.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting too, because I do think religion to a certain degree is sort of tied into the discussion if not sort of subversively sometimes and part of christianity like really talks about adam and eve being forced out of garden of eden and that essentially they're told that they're stewards of the space that they have to take care of the land they have to take care of the animals they only take what they need all of those sort of establishments of a relationship between the earth and which is a gift from the creator and these individuals And how perverse that idea has become, that it's not about taking care of it, it's about taking. You've eliminated the care aspect and it's about taking. And that not only like religiously are can you take, but it's your right to take. That there's people that believe that their creator has given this to not to take care of, but to strip and to consume, which has no symbiotic relationship attached to it. And it doesn't allow you to maintain what you have. It it, it is a process that will eliminate everything that's there and um, until it's unlivable. And that from a theological point of view, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would your creator give you something so that you could use it until it's no longer usable? And if that creator wanted you to find these resources and use them in these ways, why wouldn't your creator make those things readily available to you? Why would he make you dig gigantic holes, leaving blemishes upon the the earth that was created for you, for those spaces? And so I think there's an interesting argument there too, in terms of like what our responsibility is. And then, you know, even getting down to people that use an aspect of Christianity for their argument, that you can actually argue that their responsibility is to be stewards of the land and not takers of the land.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's a, I think it's an absolutely logical argument. In Homelands, you were talking about how being in the space on a bike allowed you to engage in the space in a very different ways than if you were in a car. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I get in my car. I always want to turn my radio on and listen to music. So I think that getting on a bike, I mean, and I have a tendency to put my headphones on too, but getting on a bike and just riding and listening and allowing you to sort of be present in the space and like, where there's so many distractions, even on a bike, but I know that when I get on my bike, that I'm doing my best to be present with the bike Um, And being present with the bike means you're being present in the space and in the land as well. I don't know, the the crunching of the rocks beneath your tires and, you know, even your hard breathing when you're suffering through those spaces. You're suffering around the things that are existing in that space with you. You know, there's a trail that I take, Just I'll just kind of run circles and it's a dirt trail and it's a false flat. So it's really fun in one direction and it's just really terrible in another direction but there's a couple of red-tailed hawks that are like always lingering around and I don't know there's something about paying attention to those things and recognizing that like I know that there's areas along this trail where there's horned toads that come out and and because of how high up I live which is about 6,800 feet the horned toads come out when it's sunny and then they sort of disappear when the clouds go away because it gets pretty cold and but they'll come out, and they'll be anything from like an inch to like several inches big, and um, like these things are things that you miss in a car when you're driving 60 miles an hour, and these are things that you miss if you're not paying attention to the spaces that you're in, and I think that's just I don't know. There's something about recognizing what's around you, and I mean, we can get into the indigenous aspect. I mean, the red-tailed hawk, you know, for my people. It's the bird that carries our prayers to the, to the creator, and that becomes an important sort of aspect to that. But I think there's there's beauty in recognizing where you are, and connecting to that to those spaces requires a little bit of quiet in your life to be able to do that. You've said before that you use
1: writing to infuse and perform your professional life, and you're a professional artist, a variety of media. But in Homelands, you sort of did the other way around, where you used your art to where on your riding and you designed your custom jersey do you want to talk about
0: that a little bit yeah i don't know i like making stuff um and in the outdoor industry and and even in particular the bike industry especially when you go to places like moab like there's significant cultural appropriation and and the problem with cultural appropriation besides sort of obvious points is that it erases the meaning and the purpose behind the things that are being appropriated and then the people receiving it miss it as well. So that's why you go to Moab and there's like Coca Pelli everywhere, and and it reaches a point of being meaningless. And Dreamcatchers, that's another really good example of something that exists in plain sight and has existed into something that's meaningless to the masses. That's why like people put them in the rearview mirrors of their cars. Like who are all these white folks sleeping in their cars, and shouldn't they be paying attention to the road? But you know, there's there's a lot of problems within this industry that point to the erasure, like the deliberate erasure of indigenous people. And and without sort of any irony, recognizing that the spaces that people are riding or hiking or climbing or you know enjoying um, are not just the homelands to a specific group of people. But oftentimes without realizing that most of the national parks in the United States are these incredibly beautiful places that were actually sacred spaces to Native people who were ejected from those spaces through state efforts to preserve. And in that preservation, to make it accessible to everybody, they made it inaccessible to the first peoples who have the greatest stake in those spaces. And But creating something that's indigenous is really important in my mind to be able to carry sort of on your shoulders. You know, there's a part of me that likes making work and that likes having that work represented. And I think that's cool and I think that's exciting. But then there's another aspect of it of, you know, the person that maybe sees that, that little film and, and maybe thinks through it and is just like, yeah, that makes sense to me. I want one of those jerseys, and then they carry those jerseys because maybe just maybe I said something that helps them connect the dots. And I, and that's not to say that like I'm doing anything. It is to say that somebody is figuring out a way to connect with the spaces that they're in, to be aware of the spaces that they're in and to try to figure out those next places to go. Velocio, who made the jersey, were just so completely open to the idea of putting something together. And I, I think it has a duality, you know, it's my artwork, which is personal, which I spend a lot of time working through kind of in my head and so there's a part of me in that work and then there's the other aspect which is like wanting to be a a good steward or a good representative of the spaces that we're in you know that that we go into these spaces in a good way that we don't run into situations like what happened I think last year Where a couple of Native people were on some land for a national park and a ranger confronted them and, you know, ended up pulling out his taser and tasing one of the natives like to the ground. And so there's this relationship that needs to stay in place for everybody and especially for Native people. And my hope is through the concept of representation, which really I think that Jersey is sort of about. That representation begets the understanding of the importance of Native people being in their own homelands, being able to uh, appreciate those things and the connection that they have to those spaces, which is like really complicated. Like that's really hard to explain to people. There was a, a bike company that I was doing some work with for about a minute. They sent me a bike and there was Native iconography like all over the bike and I didn't recognize it on their website. And um, I had to go through this process. Like, I can't go straight to the bike company and be like, hey, you know, this is a problem and this is why. Like, I need a white guide to take me through the back door and like, be there with me so that it validates what I'm about to say. So like, even in a moment of, I don't know what to call it, wokeness, I still have to have, like, I still have to have a white guide to assure folks that it's okay for what I'm about to say. And then I was very respectful recognizing that people go on the defensive and uh, you know, like nobody wants their product or the thing that they've created that they love and that they're proud of to be criticized. And so I go in, I don't go in aggressively. I go in just like, look, you know, I really appreciate the bike. I really like the bike. I really like the geometry of the bike, but there's this problem and the problem is a problem because of these reasons, you know, cultural appropriation and sort of a disembodiment between these symbols and what they mean and where they come from. And, and this is not what we're doing now, you know, especially after the sort of second round of Black Lives Matter, you know, there's, there seems to be at least an effort to be more aware of the spaces that we're in and the things that we're doing. I mean, it's why the Washington football team pulled their stuff. I mean they pulled it under threat of you know financial disarray. But, but there is somebody out there who has a moral component to the threat that put them in a the position to do that. And, and so I, I explained this and didn't just explain it but also offered a solution. The solution is you could hire a native artist or designer and it doesn't have to be me. It can, I, I could point you in the direction of a bunch that designs a bike for you. And then you take that bike and you put it out in front of everybody and say, hey, we made this bike and we did these things and we realized that this was inappropriate. So we hired this artist and he made this bike and this looks really awesome. And so this is the new version of the bike. And I'm like, I guarantee you, if you do, that bike will sell out. It will 100% sell out. (laughs) Absolutely. So they said, that's really awesome. That's really great. We appreciate the information. Let us get back to you. And my white guide, he was the one who arranged this and built this relationship and got me in the door. And they sent the bike. When they sent the bike, they told he could keep it. And, but never told me. So I never saw an email or anything that said like, you may have this bite. So they responded a few days later and said, hey, we talked to our designer and our designer apologized for, you know, all these things. that wasn't done, you know, with malice. We really appreciate the information and, uh, and appreciate you taking the time to say something. We're going to move forward with, you know, with what we already have and send the bike back when you're done. And that was that like, and it's so passive aggressive and it's like, it's these little sort of arbitrary places where, which, which really, I think embellish the microaggressive nature of it, because it's really hard for me to be like, Hey, like you're a prick because you did X, Y, and Z. Like it's not being straightforward and in my mind, omission. Is uh, just as bad of a sin as an outright lie, and and being passive aggressive to me it is omissive in nature, and and so, yeah, like that happened, and it's just like, wow, well, that really sucks, you know, and that's like really a bummer because they miss the point and they make a good bike, and uh, but then like, what do you do with that? But this is what we're up against oftentimes, like as people of color are trying to have a discussion about like where we fit, why we fit there, why we have to talk about these things and why these things are important. Because these things are important as an Indigenous person, but these things are also important as, you know, a Mexican or as an African-American or as any person who doesn't fit what the, the specific mold is or has been created within these industries because they are overwhelmingly white. And the whiteness of those spaces denotes not just the power of those things, the, the power structure of whiteness within these industries, but it also points towards economic privilege and the fact that like the inaccessibility of these things feeds the, the reason why the industry looks the way that it does and acts the way that it does. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, the good end to the story is that I'm in talks with a uh, bike company right now um, looking at full support and maybe designing some bikes. Hopefully this three frames that we'll put out for auction and hopefully we can get that all pulled together and hopefully uh, a relationship that continues to go on and maybe even into a direction where we can have bikes that are designed by Indigenous people to be ridden by people who love riding their bikes in our homelands. And uh, And I think that there's some beauty to that. So... Uh, a non-native person riding a bike designed by a native person in the homelands of those people. that's pretty a uh, pretty incredible and pretty powerful thing.
1: That's beautiful. That's absolutely. you'll have to you'll have to keep us posted when uh, those go up for options that we can share that with everybody. So in my hometown, very similar to Washington over the course of pandemic makes the timeline a little sketchy. <laughs> But over last year, they changed their name as well, finally. And I know that you were heavily involved in the Change the Name Movement. You've talked a lot about cultural appropriation. It's sort of a running theme in a lot of your artwork. So what guidance are, would you give to, to non-Indigenous people, to non-Native people,
0: the difference between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation? You know, that's a really interesting question. I was talking to, I'm on panels, like art panels and all and kinds of stuff all the time and I have one coming up and the discussion about that is a hard discussion because even though we're all speaking English, we don't always mean the same thing. I was on a panel for an outdoor industry convention that was in Denver a few years ago. On this panel was all Native people And we were talking specifically about a cultural appropriation. It was really interesting because um, within the discussion of cultural appropriation, we were talking about how important it is that native people inform what's going on because of the knowledge that we have. And there were some white folks in the crowd that heard the word knowledge and understood that to believe that it's something learned. And when native people are talking about knowledge, you're not necessarily talking about something that you can go to school for and learn and then get an official piece of paper that makes you an expert in said thing knowledge is cultural it is tied through language it's tied through stories it's tied through it's tied through genetic memory and and through family and through all of these different things so it's not necessarily like i can explain it but it's not necessarily going to be received in the same way that that i uh, have it within me. And so that's why like appreciation always falls short because it doesn't land in a place that is coming from somewhere that is understood generationally, culturally, or beyond. And so in this panel, we're having this discussion and and this person said, uh, raised their hand, they said, so if I do my due diligence and if I do the research and if I you know, go about this in the best way possible, and I create something with my new knowledge and understanding of what this stuff means and why I'm doing it, then it's okay. And the answer to that was no, absolutely not. And, you know, it seems like a stretch. And, you know, this is, this is talked about too much, but like when you look at something like sports mascot which is a bastardized representation of Native people. It's Native people through the lens of uh, settler colonialism. It is not us, but it is the perception of us, which means it's removed from the reality of who we are. And what ends up happening is that those things represent us and then we're being told that they're meant to honor us. They're being done in a way that is meant to be respectful or a way to, what's the other word, like appreciate. And then it misses the mark. And this is where things get really dicey. And, And I just figured this out yesterday. I just said this like outwardly yesterday. Intent is a statement of your proposed action. Intent is not actual action. Action is action.
1: I like that. We might title the episode
0: that. Yeah. So that means that if your intent was to do good, if your intent was to appreciate, uh, if your intent is to be respectful, but your end result doesn't uh, yield those intents, it doesn't make your final product okay. Intent means nothing. Intent is, is just that, it's intent. But your actions represent your final product, represent what, and could be argued too, that that your final product actually represents your intent. And so this is where English gets really weird, right? Because it's like, I'm saying one thing, but I mean something else. And so when we look at appreciation versus appropriation, we're talking about a couple of different things. Because appreciation, in my mind, like I can go to an art gallery, and I can look at a piece of art and i can appreciate it if i remake that piece then under western standards then that's sort of like an aspect of appreciation but there's and, and that's a process of art and making art too right like you go to art school and you paint masters works so that you can learn their process and uh, whatever you know they say the that what is it the Greatest form of flattery is, I don't know, I can't even Mimicry or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it ends up like the Western idea of what appreciation means is different than like the impact of appreciation or the action behind appreciation. And so when you take something like, let's just say textiles or symbols that exist in textiles, in my community, Textiles have existed and the symbols that are in textiles have existed for literally thousands of years. And so a non native person comes along and they say, Hey, that's cool. And they take that and they incorporate it into a t shirt or they incorporate it into um, their bike frame or whatever. And they're saying that it's appreciation, but they have removed that thing from its original place and have given it a new context without having a stake in the life of that thing and whereas like and you know somebody i'm sure somebody will come along and be like well as an artist you're doing the same thing but i have a stake in the life of that thing as it relates to my family my my mother my grandparents my great-grandparents my great-grandparents my great-grandparents all the way down the line the way that these things have existed and have represented our people and so I can carry those things on my arm as I do. I can carry those things in textiles. I can reimagine them into paintings, into a two-dimensional form because as I'm creating those things, I'm also thinking about how long they've existed, um, where they've existed, and recontextualizing those things with all of that in mind allows me to think as a Native person that we are moving forward. One of the biggest myths of indigenous people is that we are a relic people that no longer exist.
1: I and wanted to ask you about that because, you know, I, I was listening to a talk that you did where you were so explicit about emphasizing that you are a contemporary artist.
0: Yeah. Well, because we're a contemporary people. Hey, have you ever seen beadwork, like native beadwork, right? Uh, beads are like sort of considered to be. A, a traditional thing. They're not a traditional thing. Beads came from Europe through trade. And so, as these things were being traded, Native people get a hold of these seed beads that are um, oftentimes made in India and then through trade make their way up into Europe and then in Europe used as trade as worthless things to give Native people in trade for things like land and resources in the early sort of contact of colonialism. Um, and natives figure out a way to make incredibly beautiful things out of beads beads are not traditional beads came from europe which means that native people took beads made something beautiful and then said you know what that's tradition this is tradition now because we made this thing which means that we are an adaptable people we're an adaptable people that progress through and can recognize what's important what's beautiful And we can integrate that into our own ideas of culture and our own ideas of identity within that culture. The idea that we're a relic, the idea that in order to be native, that you have to have a headdress and that your hair has to be long and that you have to live in a certain place, you have to talk a certain way, are all based on the perception of our existence and not upon the reality of our existence. And and I think that's incredibly important. And that's not to say that like, basket weavers and blanket weavers and you know people that are doing traditional pottery or whatever is being created aren't important to native art because they absolutely are but it is to like to believe that those are the only aspects of native art is to be dismissive of our modern existence that i can like Listen to Kendrick Lamar and I can still go to ceremony and sing traditional songs like those spaces have a duality to them that are incredibly important, not just in my survival, but also important in my identity, that I'm not just a native person, but I'm also a native person having an American experience or a Western experience. And um, that is something that's fairly new for non-native people to grasp onto and we're beginning to see illustrations of it that are really cool, from reservation dogs, which is on TV, and Rutherford Falls, to native hip hop, to native punk rock, to native artists and and writers and people that are creating modern stories of native people doing things that are relatable because we forget in that relic narrative that we are talking about human beings and human beings are having experiences much like other human beings are. So it should be relatable.
1: Yeah, totally. I love how you said that you would love to have a non-Native person riding a Native-designed bike in Native homelands. And you've talked a lot about understanding and respecting whose lands you're on. And I know you've said to yourself, like, these are my homelands, and I'm currently in these other people's homelands. What advice do you have for those of us who are non-native when it comes to understanding, respecting, being a good guest in space? Like what sort of guidance do you like to give?
0: I don't. I mean, (laughs) I, I think, you know, most of the places that we're in have it right. You know, you should, you know, work to leave no trace as you go into these spaces. And sometimes even the most arbitrary looking thing like a rock might not seem like much, but it ends up being much, you know, there was an instance, I think it was in Goblin Valley, which is in, in Utah, where some scout leader like pushed over a rock formation. Like, I'm sure that seemed like a good idea at the time, because like these things are balanced in a way and it looks precarious. and It's just a rock. It's just a rock, but it's not just a rock like these are formations that have taken millions of years to create and do mean something to Native people and to non-Native people. And I think that recognizing where you are is a good first step for people. I used to be of the mindset that like these are our homelands and so they're important to us and we have to connect with these spaces. And so like you can't connect with those spaces in the same way. I don't necessarily believe that's true. I think that the desire to connect with the lands that you are on is an inherently important aspect of where we all came from. Europeans once were a tribal people as well. There are people that lived in small groups and families that lived off the land, that had a relationship with the land, that had a relationship with the the plants and the foliage and the animals, that they knew what each of those things did. If there was something medicinal, if there was something that would help you feel better, if there was something that made your breath smell better, whatever, you know, and the two things that, that destroyed that relationship is monarchy and an organized religion, because now you're no longer relying on those lands. You're relying on power structures that tell you what you should be doing and how you should be doing it, if not oppressively, even. And um, from a historical point of view. And so it's such a removal that like when Columbus came to this side of the world and he came across indigenous people in the islands of what is now the Dominican Republic or Haiti, that he's looking at human beings and he doesn't recognize what he doesn't know what he's looking at. He doesn't recognize what he's looking at. And so there's a, a, a separation of what that humanity looks like to where you can't even recognize yourself. You're so far removed that you can't recognize yourself. Now we have a country, and when I say a country, I am speaking of North America, because I think Canada goes through very much the same things as America does in this respect. Absolutely. That you have an entire continent of people that have spent generations or are coming from, generationally coming from people that came here that abandoned everything. They abandoned their language, they abandoned their traditions, they abandoned their land, they abandoned their stories. So even what little bit of connection they may have had had to the spaces that they were in, they abandoned it in the name of assimilation to a new Western culture in the North American continent. And now generations later, we find that there's just so much depression and anxiety and disconnect that people feel like that they're lost or they feel like that they're not in spaces and it's not uncommon to meet people who love hiking and love bicycling and love doing all these things because they were suffering those ailments and needed something to help balance themselves and I think there's a reason for that and and the reason for that is is that we now have people that have had their minds quiet just enough to be able to be like, there's something missing and I need to connect with something. And I think this is why cultural appropriation happens, actually. And even sort of what you might call, I guess, spiritual appropriation, because it's sort of along the same lines. That, that there's people who are lost and want to connect with something. And maybe they're going about it the wrong way. Maybe they're like doing a sweat lodge with some white guy that like, you know, did a sweat lodge once with an Indian and now is an expert on said sweat lodge. And that's not the right way to go about it. But it does speak to a greater issue and that is the desire to connect with something. And I think that connection can happen through simply being in the spaces that we're in, through appreciating the spaces that we're in, through recognizing the history of those spaces, through recognizing the people that were in those spaces, and through not doing anything crazy or weird, but just by simply being in those spaces, knowing where you're walking, building a relationship with the land that you're on. It doesn't matter if it's your homelands or not. I don't think a lot of people that live here now are here under any sort of malice. They're usually here because their parents were from here and their grandparents were from here and you know, so on and so forth. So All of that ends up pointing to a place of trying to find balance of some kind. And I think balance is found outside. And I think balance is found in appreciating where you're at and and what's around you.
1: I like that. I love that, actually. You seem to be one thing that is consistent, seems whether it's your activism, your art, your cycling, disrupting stereotypes of who is an indigenous person or what an indigenous person should be or
0: where they should be what a cyclist should look like why is that so important to you I don't know I mean for native people you know like I don't look like the stereotype like high cheekbones I mean if I do they're covered under like fat faces and (laughs) you know like my people are pretty big like Samoan big I'm I'm six four you know I'm like probably right around 250 and been working on that. And I don't necessarily fit this strange stereotype that you might see somewhere else of Native people. But the idea that like Native people fit within a very specific or rigid set of rules or ideas is damaging because I have children that don't look like that. I don't even look like that. And that the Native people on this continent are as diverse as the world that we live in. And so the perception of what we're supposed to be is damaging. And there's been studies done about it that like it literally affects native children and their sense of self-worth because they don't get to decide who they are, that somebody else is making that decision for them. But what it ends up doing too, it's like stealing somebody's identity away from them and it doesn't give them a place to self-identify. I mean, I've known full blood native people that are told like you don't look native and that's because of the prevalence of those stereotypes. I was like thinking about this too, is that's another interesting aspect because riding bikes is really good for you and it's like low impact. I think it's really interesting that we shame people for being overweight or not looking fit enough. But like the fact that I'm getting on the bike or that somebody is getting on the bike means that they're putting forth the effort to try to be healthier, to enjoy something. And so I think disrupting That aspect is incredibly important because it doesn't matter if you're really, you know, big and you're riding a bike because you're riding a bike. And I'm a big guy and I know I'm a big guy. I have a tendency to put work ahead of everything. And then I'm a little bit obsessive about work. And, And I'm getting older, so it becomes, you know, more and more difficult with sort of maintaining that. But the fact is that at my size, I could still knock out a hundred miles in a day with no problem. Like I can do it. And so it, it's interesting. The, the idea that the cycling industry is also created within like what you're supposed to look like. I mean, so much has been based and I think is sort of surrounded by the tour de France and, and pro tour riders out of Europe. And, and those guys are amazing. I'm not belittling those guys or or the women that are doing the same exact races, you know, before after the ones that are actually that are televised. But I don't think you have to be one of those to appreciate how incredible riding a bike is. Because even as an adult, you know, in my forties, that feeling of freedom when you ride, like that's still prominent in everything that I'm doing. Like, you know, look, I, maybe I go for a bike ride and let's say I'm only going like forty miles, but like I'm riding forty miles, going like. Maybe I could go fifty. Or maybe I could go sixty. Like, there's freedom in that, in being able to to go after that. And I think that that's incredible. And I know that you know appreciate what they do in terms of you know the clothing that they create, and it's um, using recycled materials, and it's being more sustainable and more responsible, sort of on an environmental level. But man, they make sizes that go all the way up to four x.
1: I, I was gonna bring that up. I wanted to ask if that was something that you had directed or if that was something that they had directed. Cause yeah, your size inclusive to 4X and men's and 3X and ladies, and that's phenomenal.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, other than the fact that like, I mean, that Homelands video was hard because, uh, because I know I'm a big guy and, and, and I'm not super stoked about wearing spandex being a big guy. But but I mean, that's also the most comfortable clothing you can wear when you're doing that type of ride. So, you know, what are you going to do? And I've been working through it because I'm planning on doing some races and stuff this year. And I used to race road bikes. When I lived in Washington, D.C., I used to do a lot of crits and stuff. And I was like, you know, 200 pounds at six foot four. And I got some legs on me. I could tear your legs off. So that was a whole thing. But like now, you know, a father, a working artist and, you know, somebody that puts work before everything else. The accessibility of good clothing and good bikes and being in good spaces is so important. And, And I would even say that the accessibility of being able to be in spaces where you're not ostracized or looked at sideways because you're not, because you don't look like you need to eat something as a lot of these cyclists do like give that guy a burger, man. Good grief. I think going after or at least representing on some level, those, the, a break of those stereotypes takes you away from the need to be, you know, a tour de France built person and can put you in a place of just recognizing the Freedom, the beauty, the health benefits of just riding a bike. It's an amazing thing.
1: And it's so, it's meaningful to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not tall by any, I'm not 5'2", but I am not a small woman. And so. no one would ever accuse me of being a Tour de France athlete. I'm still a person who can buy off the rack, but I'm not, you know, this tip of the stereotypical cycling body. And I find it difficult at my size to find tops that fit. And I'm someone who can buy off the rack in nearly every store. So it's just, I, I pay so much attention and it's so meaningful because the size of a shirt shouldn't be the thing that keeps you off a bike.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a simple idea. <laughs> and one of the things I really like in just sort of watching below shows, advertising and things as one of their ambassadors, I've seen them do ads of like, different sized people and and that's awesome and i think that's pretty regular and frankly when we start to getting into trying to be more inclusive for people of color coming into these industries or doing these races or these bike rides and stuff i mean people of color have different physiological makeups and different structures and so you're going to get people of all kinds of sizes and then i think that's important as well like it doesn't matter like just Get out and ride your bike and have fun. You might be surprised at how strong someone like me is, you know, against the skinny little guys. I can tell you one thing, my downhill is a lot faster than yours. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Man, this has been amazing. And I've been riveted. I have a thousand more questions to ask you, but I know we're going into overtime and and I know that feeling a little under the weather and I've been keeping you talking. So I just have a few more questions and I, I'd love to get you back at some time in the future so I can ask yeah. them three pages of questions that I have for <laughs> you. This has been so great. But one question that I like to ask everybody, because I, I love the answer is what's the one question you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked you?
0: Well, I don't know. I, I, I say that as somebody that does like a lot of interviews and, you know, and talks a lot, both invited and uninvited to talk a lot. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm pretty open about everything, so I'm not sure. My favorite shoes uh, to ride in are special because they make a wide shoe, (laughs) and I got these wide Indian feet, so I don't know. Like, that's the only thing. I mean, I have a family, and yeah, I get to talk about all of those things, and it's super cool. I, I feel privileged to be able to share a lot of the stuff that I get to do, so I can't think of anything.
1: Okay. What's, what's next? I know you talked about hopefully potentially designing some bikes for auction. Mm-hmm. What what else is coming up for you in this season? Well, I have
0: two big solo shows coming up in August, and I'm hoping to do a couple of races locally here. But for sure, I'm doing uh, Steamboat Gravel and Rebecca's Private Idaho um, with Rebecca. It's a stage race in Idaho, and uh, Rebecca's a good friend and just a total badass when it comes to the bike she's definitely one of my heroes or sheroes is that what they're called i don't know (laughs) i think we're good with both yeah for sure so those are coming up for sure mostly i'm just waiting on the opportunity to make some bikes i'm excited to post those and get them up and i I know i'll be riding at least one of them for sure so but the, the idea of being able to share sort of something in a new medium is really exciting to me
1: yeah Yeah, I'm excited to see those. So for our listeners, where do we find you? Where do we find out about
0: show dates? Where do we find your art? Instagram is probably the best place. So my handle is just Greg Deal, G-R-E-G-G. D-E-A-L. I do have a website. This is gregdeal.com. Those are the two places I'm most prominent. And I'll announce shows and I'll announce things that are coming up, like those those mediums oftentimes. And I haven't been too active the last month or so, but I'll, I'll be back on it probably next week. I've been up and down and sick and dealing with all kinds of weird stuff the last month. So I'm just kind of catching up. But yeah, I'm out there. I'm easy to find. Listeners, you'll find links
1: to Greg, his Instagram the homelands video and website all on the show notes for this episode. Greg, thank you so, so much for your time today. This has been incredible. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do it again soon. Yeah. I really hope to have you back. Let's definitely keep in touch. Cause like I said, I've got so many more
0: questions for you. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs)
1: And that is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Greg are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope this conversation was as riveting for you as it was for me. And if it was, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.